Well, it is a privilege to be able to open God's Word to you all any day, but in particular, I want to thank the pastors for allowing me to preach God's Word to you once more before the Madel family embarks on our new adventure in Virginia. If you would please open your Bibles to uh, 1 John 2, verse 28, and we're going to be looking at uh, the passage through chapter 3, verse 3. So John 2, 28. <clears throat> and we are unintentionally doing a uh, mini-series on 1 John. Both myself and Adrian next week are going to be preaching 1 John, um, and, uh, and so by, in God's providence, we'll, we'll have two consecutive uh, weeks in 1 John. So let's read this passage together. If you're using the Pew Bible, it is page 1083, 1083. So let's read this now. So now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears... We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, I pray that those in this building here would be moved to abide in you, to seek and to savor you, to hope and marvel in your second coming. I pray that now that you speak through me and to help me to preach clearly and that we would savor your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, the uh, book of 1 John is widely accepted to be written by the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, the author of the fourth gospel. And this letter is unique in that John doesn't introduce himself at the beginning of the letter uh, like many of the Pauline epistles. And additionally, it reads very much like a sermon uh, yet it is clearly a letter because John says multiple times, this is why I write to you. Now, John writes like how some people talk, bouncing from topic to topic, yet everything he says is gold. But don't, don't get it wrong. John isn't just trying to find the right thing to talk about as if he's sort of fumbling about until he finds just what he likes or what is witty or that will resonate with his audience. Rather, it is from his writing you can feel the impassioned plea to the reader and the love that he has for the Savior. 
He wants the reader to know and to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is life-changing. In particular, in our passage this morning, he wants the reader to abide in Christ because it brings hope and joy for the second appearing of Christ. At the time of writing this letter, John is uh, rather old. He is nearing the end of his life, and it's about 50 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. So John is an elder statesman of the faith at this point, and this is why in verse 28, as well as many other parts of his letter, uh, he uses this phrase, little children. And this is is an endearing and, and natural statement for an elderly apostle to use when he's writing to those younger in the faith. So this is how we're introduced to the passage. He says, and now, little children, and now. So he's coming off of a paragraph in which he was just warning about the Antichrist but specifically those who are operating in the spirit of the Antichrist. And how he defines that is that it's those who deny Jesus as the Christ. He also refers, uh, refers to this as denying the truth. He concludes that section just previous to our passage this morning by saying that their regeneration or their anointing gives them the truth of who Jesus is, and they need not be taught anything else outside of the gospel about who Jesus is. So he says, he concludes that section just before ours with the command, abide in him. And so by beginning our passage with that same thing, he links the two paragraphs with this phrase. So he says in verse 28, he says, And now, my little children, here's the command, abide in him. Well, that sounds really fantastic. That sounds uh, really biblical. But what does it mean to abide in him? How does one do that? What is John actually commanding of us here? Well, this word abide means to stay or to remain. All of its usages throughout the New Testament have this same meaning. It is to stay or to remain. Most notably, we find it in John's gospel in chapter 6, where Jesus says he abides with those who feast on his body and drink of his blood. And then once again, also in uh, chapter 14 of John's gospel, Jesus says that the Father dwells or abides in him. So to abide in Christ, therefore, we must first be in him. To remain somewhere, you have to first be there. For I cannot remain in this pulpit here this morning unless I am already here. So we can conclude that John is speaking to believers here, and we can also conclude that one must first be in Christ in order to remain in him. That is the prerequisite to what John is about to elaborate on in the following verses. But that is key. One must be in Christ One must not deny him as the Son of God, the creator of the world, and the Savior of sinners. One must not deny him. 
To remain in him is to abide in the truth. So John commands, abide in him. Remain in him. Do not falter. Do not trust another gospel, but abide in him. Yet, the Apostle John does not just leave us with that command. An apostle who deeply loves Jesus, John knew that the command to abide in him was not just a one-dimensional command, but rather it has far-reaching effects. The second part of verse 28 says, So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So that when he appears, it is not a question of if he will appear again, right? That would be a much different implication. There is full confidence from John that Jesus will appear again. And when he does, there are two responses depending on how you heed John's words. The two responses are confidence and shame. I remember when I was in college, I came home for break, and I went to the mall with my brother. We were hanging out. We got bottomless root beer floats and fries from Red Robins, so we were having a pretty good time. And... Um, I remember driving back home, and there was not a car on the road, and we are blasting Switchfoot and having a good time, and I did it. I, I ran a red light, and it shocked me. I didn't realize that it was red. We were having too much of a fun time, I guess, and I just I went right through it, and right on the other side of the intersection was a police car, as if he was waiting for me. And I pulled over, I knew it, I, ugh, I pulled over, and before he could even turn on his lights, come around and follow me, I pulled over and I rolled down my window. And as he approached my car, I was just shrinking into my seat. I was embarrassed, I was ashamed, and he came to the door and he said, what were you thinking? And I had no answer, I had been had. I was guilty and it was clear. On the flip side, have you ever accomplished something or completed something well that you know you did well? It's the best feeling in the world. In my line of work, I get audited every couple of years. They, they shadow me and they take notes. And then about a week later, I have a meeting with my boss and we go over this audit visit. Well, those first couple of years I was with the company, those meetings didn't go well. Uh, but the last few years, as I've learned how to do my job well and accomplish things correctly, I went into those meetings with confidence. I knew that the work I had done was done well. And when everything was exposed, that I could go in there with confidence. John is communicating to us this very idea that when he comes again, all will be exposed. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says this. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
all will be exposed. So John asks, what will your response be at his coming? Will it be with confidence or will it be with shame? Why would someone have confidence versus shrinking away in shame? We know that John tells us to abide in Christ so that we can have confidence, but why would there be those two responses? Well, let's turn quickly to 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. And I'll give you a moment if you'd like to turn there. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10 says, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony testimony to you was believed. So when Christ comes again, those who do not abide in him will experience his eternal punishment. But what are those who are abiding in him, what are they doing at his second coming? They are marveling. They receive him with joy and exaltation. That is why we must abide in him. But as we continue on in our passage, we find even more reasons to abide in him. But we must keep this in mind. John is framing his petition and his exhortation in light of the last days and with an eye on the second appearing of Christ. He assumes that you have been united to Christ in his first appearing so that you might abide with him and receive him with confidence in his second appearing. This unity and abiding with Christ is what leads John to quickly explain or or describe how to know who are in Christ. This is verse 29. He says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. He tells the reader that everyone who practices righteousness has been born in Christ because he himself is righteousness. What is a distinguishing mark of those who abide in him? John tells us, everyone who practices righteousness. Now, let's take a few observations from this verse. First, John is not telling us that everyone who does a good deed is in Christ or is right with God. That would be universalism, where everyone is good, everyone is saved. What does Scripture tell us about that? Isaiah 65 tells us that outside of God, our acts are like filthy rags. They're nothing. Second, notice what John does and doesn't say. He doesn't say all those who are 
perfect are righteous and thus are born of him. In fact, he says just the opposite in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So to abide in Jesus is not to be perfect. That is not the identifying mark of being in him. So what is? What does John tell us it is? It is those who practice righteousness. And to practice righteousness is to routinely live a life that seeks to live rightly before God. Which means that practicing righteousness is going to entail a life of repentance. Why would a life of righteousness entail constant repentance? It's because we're sinful. In Romans 7, Paul describes this very dynamic of wanting to live right before God, but living in a life in which he still sins. He's still sinful. And he concludes that, that, that contemplation of that with this phrase. He says, oh, what wretched man I am. He's imperfect. But yet, because of our union with Christ that is sealed by the Holy Spirit, we can practice righteousness. We can practice repentance in turn from our sins. Our desires and affections can be changed to wanting to live rightly before God. In a small way, it's like a caterpillar going through metamorphosis where he's turned into a butterfly. You have been turned into something that is far more beautiful. You can fly, but yet you still get on your belly and crawl as if you weren't given wings. You're a butterfly doing caterpillar things. Now, as silly as that illustration might seem, the principle applies. Consider what John says earlier in our chapter, chapter 2, verse 3. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Salvation is unity with Christ, where you are clothed with his righteousness. Yet you live in a fallen world where there is still sin. So how do we rectify that, those two realities? Well, Scripture gives us the answer. Practice righteousness. You sin, but you practice right living before God. You sin, but you daily are choosing to live right before God. You must daily look to Christ because it is only through him by which you can practice righteousness. So hear what is not being said here. You must be perfect to abide in Christ. And on the other side, John is also not saying, well, because you can't be perfect, it's okay to stay in your habitual sin. There's only one category for that latter person, and John says that they are called a liar. 
Let the word of God convict you, brothers and sisters, this morning. We must practice right living before God. This is how we know if we abide in him. Well, John continues describing the robust effects of abiding in Christ. To be united to Christ and to abide in him is to be called a child of God. Look at how John marvels at this reality in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. To experience the love of a friend or a brother or a cousin or or a grandmother has a special familial affection. But to be loved by a father is special in its own right. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. The Father loves us. In his love, he has given to us what he knows is the best possible thing, and it is to be called his child. We not only have salvation, but we have communion with the Father as his children. We have that sort of fatherly intimacy that only children can have. Again, this is through abiding in Christ. Even more so, this gives us a new identity. We are changed because of it. The rest of verse 1 here reads, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I remember uh, my dad, uh, when he first got elected to a local position of county legislator, uh, when I was young, he began receiving mail, uh, not just as Rick Madel, but it was the Honorable Richard Madel. And as a kid, I was perplexed. I was like, what, what happened? Why is he receiving mail like that's an Honorable Richard Madel? <laughs> I didn't know what that meant. But what happened is his legacy had changed. He received the Honorable Richard Madel status. His status had changed. And John tells us we have a new status. We are children of God because we are united to Christ. And because of that, we abide in him. J.I. Packer puts it this way. Knowing God as one's holy father sums up New Testament religion and that one can tell how well he understands Christianity by seeing how much he makes of being a child of God. This marveling and amazement that is just permeating through John's writing should compel us to see and know that the truth that we are abiding in is so great and so wonderful that we would never entertain any other gospel. Consider how Hebrews 2 verses 1 through 3 speaks to this. It says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who have heard. Attested to us by those who have heard. That's John 
where we are this morning. Our adoption by the Father is downstream from our salvation, meaning we sometimes have this idea that not only did God reluctantly save us, but now that we've been saved, there's still because of his transcendence and our sin and our worldliness, that there is a separation, that we're still far from him. But if you abide in Christ today, church family, that couldn't be further from the truth. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. He doesn't reluctantly love you. He loves you so much that he adopted you as his own. He adopts you not aloof of who you are. He does not adopt you as his child with with gritted teeth. Rather, he with joy adopts you as his own. If that is you today, that is and always will be your greatest claim to fame, that you are a child of God. The absolute sovereign king of the universe, he commands all things. He has all things. He is perfect in himself, perfectly satisfied in himself, and he invites you. He says, come, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. This new reality for us makes it so that the world does not know us because it does not know him. There is that much of a closeness. There is a natural tension and opposition from the world to those who are in Christ. In fact, Jesus says that we will be hated by the world because of him. This is a reality that has a bit of an oddity here in America for many years as uh, we experience a culture which has largely accepted us, that we're allowed to freely worship here this morning. But as many of you know, that is not the truth all around the world today. But even more so, just because we're allowed to freely worship here this morning doesn't mean that the world doesn't hate us. Children of God are are foolish to the world. Why would they hope in the second coming of a man that came so long ago? Why are they willing to lay down what they have to obey some book and some God? We look different to the world because our desires no longer are looking at self, but it is walking in humility as Christ did. Our identity has changed and our hope has changed. In chapter 2, 28, the first verse of our passage, John tells us to abide in Christ. Namely, remain in the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. We can have confidence and hope not only because of what Christ has done, but what he will do. He is not finished. Verses 2 through 3 read, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. For us who are in Christ, who abide in him, His second appearing will bring about a change in us. 
Notice how John transitions, though, to this writing, and he says, Beloved, we are God's children. That's who you are. You are beloved. Now what does he describe? We are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. If you've spent any time in church, you've probably heard a phrase, already, not yet. And there are many aspects to that phrase, and many books have been and can be written about that phrase. But right here, we see one of the primary meanings of that phrase. We are who we are now. We are flesh and bone. We are weak. We are frail. We are prone to wander. We are sad. We are sick tired and sinful. We have diseases and and disabilities. We have sin crouching at our door. And yet, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet appeared. The call is there for us. Live in light of your new identity. You are a child of God. You abide in the Son of God. You are beloved. So live in righteousness. But yet we feel the weight of our flesh in a world that is wrapped in sin. So we ask, when will we find relief? When will we be made right? When will we be made holy new? When will our questioning be answered? Look at what John says next. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will be made like him. Christ came to be glorified. When we shall see him like he is, we will see him in all his glory. 2 Thessalonians 1.10, once again, says, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled among all who have believed. Why does John uphold this to us as a hope? To answer that, we must ask, what is Jesus like? What will he be like when we see him? Well, he is fully and completely beautiful, happy, and satisfied. John Piper, commenting on this verse, says, His purpose is not merely that the glorification of his son occur alongside the happiness of his people, but that the happiness of his people be in the glory of Christ, so that the glorification of Christ would shine brightly in the happiness of his people in him. So this is key. We are made perfect and whole at the coming of Christ because it is as a result of that transforming that we can actually wholly and completely receive and marvel him at his coming. We are made new and thus we can behold him perfectly. We will be made perfectly happy when he comes again because we will behold his glory perfectly. Now, preaching at times can be a difficult task, especially when it comes to the what then question. But my task this week was made easy because the application for us is in verse 3. It says, "...in everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure." 
So the answer to our what then question is to hope in him. The vision of Christ is so beautiful that our Christian life is living in light of our changed identity. One theologian puts this reality this way. He says, seeing God is so delightful and the happiness it promises so fulfilling that the Christian who looks for its arrival does so out of a reservoir of desire. Right now, the Christian does not see God, so his task is to desire the vision of God. As you hope in him, you are changed and purified. We should think of this in contrast of a different way of living. Rather than keeping our hopes set on a different gospel that functionally tells you that you are God or one that tells you that God is not who he says he is, we should hope in him. Now, often the question of of this dynamic of being made like him, of purifying ourselves, also known as sanctification, of being made like Christ, how does that happen? How does someone change? Well, it comes from keeping your hope in Christ. It is by marveling and hoping in the coming of Christ that we might be purified. It is by hoping in Jesus that we are held fast to the end of our days. And now this is functionally and fundamentally an inside-out process. It's not an outward conformity to, to rules, to regulations, or to laws. It's not a mirroring of the best person you know or your favorite preacher or some imagined super Christian. Your pattern for change is an internal unity and hoping in Christ that flows outward. One commentator gave this helpful analogy, and I wanted to share it with you. He says, when a baseball player hits a home run, he cannot be put out. But he also has to run the bases and make sure he touches all the bases. Though he is in no danger of being thrown or tagged or called out, he still has to run the bases. No one on the field or in the bleachers can throw him out. And when Jesus died on the cross, he put it over the fence. As a Christian, I am a son of God, but I still have to run the bases of the Christian life. I'm not in any danger of losing my salvation. He who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm saved, sanctified, and safe for all eternity. Now, if you are here this morning and that hope is not yours, that you do not abide in Christ, or perhaps maybe you feel like you did at one point, but you don't today, Or possibly you have never trusted in God, that you can't say, I've ever abided in him. I want to plead with you to heed John's words this morning and to unite yourself to him in faith so that when he returns again, when Christ returns again, you will see him with confidence and not shrink away in shame. Do you want the hope of eternal life, the hope of eternal joy, Do you want that relief from sin? 
Put your faith in Christ today. Don't wait should his appearing come sooner than you realize. Abide in him today. He is drawn out to you. You can be his child today should you put your trust and faith in him. Christ's righteousness can be yours. Will you be united to him when he comes again? Will you have the hope of being made like him, of being perfectly happy? And will you be purified by hoping in him today? And Christian, if that is your hope, if you abide in him today, we're almost home. Let the hope of Christ's second appearing be what your eyes are fixed on. Let's pray. Heavenly, we, Heavenly Father, we pray and we ask that you would please help our wandering hearts, our hearts that are, are quick to forget this, quick to not have our eyes fixed on you. We pray that the coming of your Son would be our hope and that it would purify us. We pray that those here this morning that might not abide in you, that you would call them to yourself and that they would respond. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as we leave this place, that it would be fresh on our mind. We love you and we ask this in your name. Amen.